Well, tonight um, we're going to begin a few messages talking about the uh, culture of revival, the culture of revival. Now, I'm um, becoming aware that I'm becoming an old man. That's hard to accept, but you know, when you see the gray hair, I had somebody in the prayer room about a month ago come up to me and, um, and she's probably be about, you know, in her mid to late 20s and she comes up to me and says, you are such a papa in the faith. I was like, you know, I, I know what she meant, but I like still emotionally in my heart identify at her age and sort of realizing that you're such a papa in the faith. But perhaps you're old enough to remember or been in church long enough um, to know when I heard the word revival, I typically thought about an evangelist in kind of a polyester suit with his hair slicked back with a series of meetings that would begin on a Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and it would culminate on a Wednesday night with a big hoedown singing and lots of fried chicken after the, after the service. So when I, when I first began to hear the word revival, that was sort of what was in my mind before time ago when I realized there's, there's really more to revival than an evangelist in a polyester suit with his hair slicked back and fried chicken. Nothing wrong with polyester suits and hair slicked back and nothing wrong with fried chicken, but that's really not what revival is. So we entitled the message series, Culture of Revival. So before we get in, let's, let's take a moment and define a couple of terms. The word culture and the word revival. So we're all singing off the same song sheet. So the word culture defined simply means this. It, it, they are the features of everyday existence shared by people in a place or a time. It's the shared things about a people that they share in a place and in a time that makes us all alike. Things we all agree to, we're all a part of, that we share. Regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, we all share these things. It's our culture. It's something that we all have in common. Out of diversity, we come into a unity of a particular culture, and we all have these. So that's what culture means, culture. What does revival mean? If it's not fried chicken and a, and a guest preacher, it is this, restoration of force, validity, or effect. That's a definition of revival. It's a restoration, a renewal of force, a validity, or effect. So when we talk about what is a culture of revival, if we're saying we as a people in this faith community are going to have a culture of revival, it means that we live in a daily expectancy of God's power to break in. Or words, there is a sense of expectancy, there's a sense of this ongoing hope that we carry continually that God's power is going to break in at any given moment. Now, I'm realizing something that I, I can't make revival happen. I can't force it to happen. In other words, I can't make it rain. You can't make it rain. I can't make it rain. But what I can do is I can stare up at the sky with a sense of expectancy, rain is coming, and savor every drop that falls from the sky. Because not every drop of rain that falls is an absolute storm. But man, when we live in a sense of expectancy, we are looking to the sky for rain. And when a few drops comes, ever been out in the rain and been thirsty, just kind of like, you know, ever, ever done this? Maybe it's just me, but I, you know, a tongue open and you feel the drops of rain landing on your tongue and you like savor every ounce of rain that hits you. 
That's what it means to live inside a culture of revival, that we have expectancy that God's power is going to break in at any given moment. And every drop we experience, we desire more and more and more. That's what it means. Because if we have no expectancy, then guess what? You're not going to ever leave disappointed, right? If you don't have expectancy, you're never going to leave disappointed. But it's when we have great expectancy that we're going to leave hungry and, and, and always wanting more because God actually is a rewarder to them that what? Diligently seek him, not passively seek him, but diligently seek him. So over the next uh, few moments, I want to I introduce a thought to us on the recipe for revival. What the recipe? Now, I just told you I could not make it rain. Now I'm going to offer you the recipe for revival. But we're going to find out that this recipe is not in me. It comes to me by the person of Jesus. So look at, look at with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I will tell you this passage in the last six to nine months has been just churning in my spirit. So, so I want to share this with, with us. Maybe not in the, in the form of a sermon per se. I just want, I want to let you guys in to what's stirring in my own heart and, and what I'm asking God for and what is particularly conviction in me. Maybe I can share that with you a little bit. You can join in my expectancy and my misery a little bit. All right. First Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church, referring back when he first came and started the church in Corinth. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's and power and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Powerful passage. So I, I propose to us tonight at 5 p.m. service that the recipe for revival is weakness, fear, and trembling. Weakness, fear, and trembling was the heart posture of Paul that would produce the demonstration of the Spirit's power in Paul's life and a church that would be established in a very unlikely city called Corinth. So the question for us becomes then, what, what, what brought Paul to a place of, of weakness and, and fear and trembling? Because if you know anything about Paul the Apostle, a.k.a. Saul of Tarsus, you would know these were probably not three virtues that were ascribed to him. This was a strong man. He knew the word. He was very articulate. He composed two-thirds of the New Testament. This was no slouch. He was trained by the finest. He was educated by the finest. He was a specimen. He was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. He was, he had an impressive pedigree and an incredible education to back it up. But something happened when you read, what, what happened to bring Paul to a place of, of weakness, fear, and trembling? 
Because before we really can find out what that's about, we got to find out what happened to him. It's called like, like cause and effect. Sometimes we get really wrapped up into the, all the effects of things. We want to see effects, 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 effects. But sometimes we got to figure out what's the cause that precipitated the effect. Everybody wants this, man, I want a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Do you? Do you really? <laughs> of course we do. Then we got to deal with the very cause that happened. So we, we find this in a, in a super familiar passage in Acts chapter 9, and I will read it to you. Acts 9 verse 1, this is when Saul of Tarsus, I won't give you the whole backstory, but essentially he's a Pharisee. He's on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. That's what he's doing. And he gets on his horse and something happens to Saul on this road, Acts 9 and 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he was traveling, or as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, let me just say this. Paul was born into the kingdom of God by encountering the person of Jesus. Now, let that sink for a second. Paul was born into the kingdom with an encounter with the personal Jesus. Do we all agree? He did not know Jesus. Now he knows Jesus. How did he meet Jesus? He encountered the person of Jesus. Let me just say this. Many of us have come into the kingdom of God mostly encountering religiosity and not the person of Jesus. All right? Many of us have come into the kingdom. We have been born into the kingdom encountering more religiosity than the person of Jesus or a mixture of the two. At least it's my story, and I suspect that's many of our story here. We come in, we have an encounter with Jesus, but there's a lot of religion and religiosity associated with it. Now, what happens is when we encounter more of this kind of religion than the person of Jesus, we are born into the kingdom with spiritual birth defects. You know what birth defects are? If a baby is born and have birth defects, that means they have abnormalities when they're born. Something's not right internally, something not, is not right externally, they have problems. So many of us, can you imagine this, we come into the kingdom and we're born in with spiritual birth defects. And if you know anybody with natural birth defects, you know, some people have to, have to fight these things their entire life. I know one person that was born in with a heart condition. They had a heart problems. And still today, they're like 75 years old because they had a congenital heart condition they were born into the world with, and they have struggled their entire time. Many of us struggle our entire walk with Jesus because we're suffering from spiritual birth defects that we came into the kingdom with. Now, here's the question. Do we have to live with these spiritual birth defects? If that's the condition of most of us, and I dare say it probably is, how do we deal with our spiritual birth defects? First, we have to recognize we have them and what's the cure and what's the solution for spiritual birth defects. Because really only a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation can reveal to us these spiritual birth defects. 
other words, God begins to show us that the Jesus we think we know, we really don't know as well as we think we do because we are experiencing him and we are looking at him through the lens of partial religiosity that's not ever him. You see? And see, this is what's holding many of us back. Now, don't confuse for any moment that the acquisition of more information is what we need to grow spiritually. Now, don't think for say, well, maybe I just need to acquire more information so I can begin to grow. Because here is the ultimate truth. The Bible doesn't say to know more information, you'll be free. He that knows more data will be free. What's the Bible say? You shall know the, the truth and the truth shall make you free. Can I tell you, truth is not data. Truth is not a formula. Truth is not a piece of information. In fact, Jesus would declare himself in John 14 that what? I am the way. I am the truth. So Jesus says, no, you need to know me. The truth is a person and it's not a piece of information. The difficulty is, and Paul says that the more knowledge we have, the more tendency we will get puffed up in pride and arrogance because knowledge puffs up but love builds up so our goal and desire is not to acquire more and more and more information now we have to receive information but unless that converts by faith to revelation making it truth it's impossible for us to grow so trust me I know a lot of information that is not converted to revelation and it's not bringing about transformation that's that's how this that's how this happens i receive information and then i must believe it by faith and it converts the information to what truth then truth becomes revelation and then transformation begins to happen you see that's how this thing works so we don't need more information in fact i know almost too much to be, to be honest with you, too many too many facts and figures the goal is we need to know Jesus. We need to know Jesus, not more information. It's about knowing him. So if we think about Paul then, Paul came to this place of, of weakness, fear, and trembling out of a pure encounter with Jesus. So that tells me then that the cure for religion is an encounter with Jesus. That's what we need. A spirit of wisdom and revelation that says, man, I need to meet this Jesus. Can I offer us something here real quick? It's possible. Just, just allow the possibility in your mind that you are more acquainted with religion than you are with Jesus. Could that be possible? Could it be possible that there is a mixture of the both operating inside of us? And we need to get the religion part out and get more Jesus in. The cure for religion is encounter with Jesus, but it comes at a cost and it's not always easy. Because here's the truth, an encounter with Jesus will often offend the mind to expose the heart, we like to say. When you begin to encounter Jesus or you see other people encountering Jesus, it will offend your natural mind. And when the heart is exposed in these things, it'll either produce humility or you will bow up in pride. You see this. When you begin to encounter Jesus, you begin to experience him that defies what your natural mind can, can't accept. It's going to expose your heart position and you're either going to like humble yourself before God or you're going to bow up in arrogance and in, and in pride. So I was, um, 
I was saved and filled with the Spirit in a, in a, in a little United Methodist church in Decula, Georgia. Typically, United Methodist churches aren't known for people to get saved and filled with the Spirit in. But there was a core group of folks in this, in this church that were experiencing a revival in a little prayer meeting, and that's where I got saved and filled the Spirit. Well, guess what began to happen? Well, it began to, you know, spill out of the prayer meeting, and people began to experience God. And it was powerful, but it didn't look like a typical Sunday morning Methodist service. It was hard to, you know, get the word of prophecy in between the offering and the glory of pottery and the doxology. It's like, how are we going to squeeze this in? So what we, what, what we began to happen is, is revival began to break out and, and, and people were, were like coming alive. But there, were, but there were those in the church that could not accept what was happening, right? Encounter will offend the mind to expose the heart. And what was discovered in many that was there, they had a heart of religion, and there was pride, and there was arrogance. And what happened? Revival couldn't come fully to that place, but ultimately, like what happens in so many churches, that church would ultimately split. How sad is that? See, many of us push back from encounter because our mind will allow us the ability to receive that all God wants to do. Because, see, there is a knowledge of the love of God that's going to pass your natural knowledge. There is a peace that we can experience that's going to pass understanding. But if our natural knowledge and our natural understanding is the lid, it's going to suppress an encounter with Jesus that will free us from religiosity. That's why encounter with God shakes things up and stirs things up. It's all by design to shake us free from our religion or the mixture of religion inside of us. Now, there's a beautiful example of this in the Bible of David. Remember the story of David, right? He had an undignified dance, didn't he? He had an undignified dance. His heart was pure before God, and he began to dance. And, right, his encountering God's presence in worship would expose the very heart of his wife because she was offended by it. You remember this, right? Look at this. 2 Samuel 6, 21. He's dancing before the Lord in his ephod, right? And then he goes up, and I believe he's going up to bless his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Think about that. I will even become more undignified than what I'm doing. And he was dancing before the Lord in his underwear. Okay, now think about it for a second. I'm not advocating an underwear dance because his underwear was a bit more modest than our underwear. All right? But the point is he was willing to be undignified and to humiliate his own self because of the presence of God. He worshiped Jesus. I look forward to the day when all of us start losing some of our dignity <laughs> and as we just begin to enter in and start worshiping the Lord. Because, you know, something happens when we begin to worship the Lord. Something happens when just a few people in a room begin to worship God. Some of you are fire starters. Can I tell you, there's never a forest fire unless somebody lights a match. 
There's never a forest fire until somebody starts a campfire. In other words, somebody's got to do something, right? And when you begin to do it in the spirit, what begins to happen? Bam, bam, bam. Fire begins to break loose, right? That's what happens. Now, sometimes people will be fire starters and they're trying to fire and nothing starts around them. That's when you got to settle down and keep it between you and Jesus, right? Right? You understand this, right? Sometimes I want to see a fire, and, but nobody else is catching on. I get it. Just go outside and march around the building. It's all right. But don't stop being fire starters. Man, let God come forth in praise and worship. And who knows, it just might ignite everybody in the room when that begins to happen. To be more undignified than this. But what perplexes me here is Michael's response to David, who is coming to bless his wife, and she chews him out. And he says, you have made a mockery of yourself, and you've made a mockery of yourself in front of these slave girls. And David says, no, actually, these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in high honor in their sight. Now, think about that for a second, the slave girls. You probably could not be a lower part of society than a slave girl. But they're used as an example. You know know who your worship and your life in God is mostly going to affect? Not religious people, but lost people are hurting people, are people that are struggling. We are not here to impress the religious elite. We are not here to make the religious folks happy because it's not going to make them happy. When God's people begin to encounter him and hearts of religiosity are exposed, we will love them, but we will love them right out the door. That's fine. This may not be for you, but who's going to be changed are the young slave girls. They're going to watch and they're going to see something that they're going to want because they're going to want what we have. You see, true revival comes when religion is displaced by love and presence and power. That's what happens. Encounter shakes things up and it begins to remove religiosity from our life. The dangerous thing for any of us to say, well, would be, well, I don't have any religion in me. Brother, sister, that tells me you are riddled with it. You really are. If you say, I don't have any religion. Listen, you have, we all have it. It's like the proverbial kudzu. It's always trying to grow back, right? You get it, you, you get it cut off of you and it's always trying to snake its way into your heart. And you know how you know when religion's starting to speak to you? Because you got that little Pharisee running around inside with that little critical spirit and that little negative things that's finding fault and accusation with people around you. That's when you know Religion starting to work on you <laughs> when self-righteousness begins to promote itself. And that's when he said, oh, Jesus, I need an encounter with you. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need my heart to be reset once again, maybe once every 24 hours. Maybe that's why Jesus said, pray this way, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Maybe Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger because we should never be defining our Christianity outside of a 24-hour period. Because if we don't bookend our life with the daily bread of God and our sun and the sun going down on a peaceful heart and our heart being instructed even while we sleep, we have a tendency to edge back to our religion. This is not a slam dunk. We don't just get rid of it. It keeps coming back. That's why the presence of God is so essential in your own prayer life. And when we come into a place like this, we don't want to just get through two or three songs and move on. We need to touch the presence of God. Because it's only in his presence that we stay free from religiosity. 
because the world doesn't need religion. Maybe that old time religion that's undefiled, but the religion of today, it doesn't, it doesn't need it. So this encounter, this encounter Paul had and, and, and encounters we are going to have with Jesus, it's going to promote these, these three essential ingredients to release the demonstration of power through us as individuals or through a church family or even a generation. It's weakness and it's fear and it's trembling. <laughs> Did you sign up for that when you, when you came to Jesus? I'm signing up for weakness, fear, and trembling. Maybe not, you know. You didn't know all this, but thank God for the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we first begin to acknowledge a creator God, and then he becomes our savior. Thank God. Then we get a little down the journey, and then he becomes our Lord. And then we find out about the fatherhood of God, and we establish our identity in him. And then we find out we're actually a bride. And, and you know, God takes us on this beautiful journey of discovering who he is to promote these very virtues that's going to release the power of God in your life and in an entire generation and in your home. The first one he talks about is weakness. It's weakness. You know, we read the story in the Bible how, how, how Paul struggled with a thorn in the flesh. Remember the story, right? Paul struggled with a thorn in the flesh that, that God in his wisdom would send a messenger of Satan to, uh, to afflict Paul with a thorn in the flesh. Now, if you have any kind of theological boxes at all, they, they all come apart right there. There are some scriptures that God blows out all your theological boxes. That's one of them. And the whole book of Hosea does the same thing. There are lots of places throughout the Bible where you read and say, God, you are quite unorthodox in what you do. So God is sending a messenger of Satan. Now, don't get lost in what the messenger of Satan was. Some people say it was his eyesight. Some people say it was his wife. I don't know. All right? We don't know, but that's not the point. The point is God permitted this demonic spirit to afflict Paul to bring about a greater revelation of grace. Now, he was a good Pentecostal charismatic, Paul was, because you know what Pentecostals charismatics do? When, when the devil attacks, what do we do? We rebuke the devil, don't you? That's what you should do. Paul prayed how many times? Three times that this thing would stop. I think that's the right thing to do. When there is an affliction coming upon you, if there's some message of Satan coming against you, the right course of action is to rebuke it. Once, twice, thrice. We rebuke it. And if it's still coming, maybe we should ask another question. Okay, God, what's going on here? Because you see, Paul's thorn made him weak in order to experience the grace of God. So the very thing that was making him weak, making him suffer, facilitated a greater manifestation of the grace of God in his life. Many of us do not have a right view of suffering. We just don't like we don't like suffering. We didn't sign up for suffering, right? Nobody signs up for suffering. But we have a very poor theology of suffering. We find out in Scripture, suffering is actually the gateway to greater glory. We said, Lord, all my life for your glory, do you know what we just signed up for? God, I want your glory. Oh, great. Get ready to suffer. Listen, Jesus didn't make any bones about it. Jesus did not try to be cosmopolitan in his presentation of the kingdom of God. He didn't put a bunch of makeup on and try to sell us on flashy marketing. He said, you're going to suffer. 
It's going to be hard. There are trials and there are tribulations. There are things that are going to happen. Yes, it's going to be difficult. They said, unless a man loses his life for my sake, he'll never really find it. So suffering actually is the gateway to greater glory. If we as Western Christians kick and scream and run away from all suffering, we may well miss what God desires to release in us. If we resist it, Paul rebuked it three times, but he didn't rebuke it perpetually. Sometimes say, okay, Lord, what's going on here? I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. But I can tell you, weakness is oftentimes comes through suffering that brings us to a place of weakness. And don't be surprised when these things happen. Don't be surprised. Now listen, you, know, you don't have to go out and seek opportunities to suffer. You don't have, I promise you, you don't have to find out, I want to get up and find where I'm going to suffer today. Now some of us sit in downtown Atlanta traffic every day. That's like, that's suffering. That's suffering. Some of us go in Wendy's and have to wait forever for the hamburger. I don't know what it is about Wendy's. I mean, they're the slowest fast food place on the planet. But guess what? It's, you know, that's, that's our whole context for suffering. But truthfully, don't be surprised when you suffer. You don't have to seek it. Trust me, suffering will find every single one of us. You don't have to look for it. I like this verse in 1 Peter 4, 12. It says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, we fall into difficult times and we wonder, how could this happen? We're so surprised these fiery ordeals come upon us. And Peter's saying, why are you surprised? Jesus said it was going to happen. So when it happens, you say, oh, that's what this is. You see, viewed rightly, suffering will take us deeper into the heart of Jesus than anything else. But if viewed wrongly, pride, arrogance, and offense will siphon off what God desires to do in us. See, we have to frame these things up rightly in our hearts so we respond to them correctly to maximize and facilitate what God is desiring to do. Because it's encountering Jesus from the place of weakness that's going to reveal the greatest amount of grace and glory in your life. This passage in Philippians 3.10, it says that, I love this passage because it says that I may know him, Paul says, that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And we like to stop right there because that's the fun part. Yes, Lord, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. But don't put periods where God puts commas. Don't put periods, you know, where God puts ands. It's not just knowing him in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. This verse is powerful, especially when you look at it in the Greek. you got two incredible Greek words. One's called ginosko and one's called koinonia. This is, the, this is the words for know and fellowship. In other words, this isn't about just knowing knowledge. This is, this is intimately knowing Jesus. Through what? Through suffering. You know what that means? That means it's actually in the place of suffering and hardship that we're going to come to know Jesus in ways we've never known him before. So if we're always resisting it and pushing away from it and running the other direction, what we're actually running away from is the knowledge of Jesus and the experience of him rather than running toward that. Now that's counterintuitive because in the flesh, we're going to run from suffering, but in the spirit, we run right toward it. 
and we embrace it and we enter into a fellowship with Jesus unlike anything else. I oftentimes tell the story, you may have heard me mention this in the past, but I have a pastor friend about uh, 10 years ago, um, his son, his 14-year-old son was killed in a tragic gun accident, hunting accident, just, just killed by a gun, hunting, died at 14 years old. And I was, I was asking my friend Russell, I said, I, I, I mean, I, what do you do with that? <laughs> I mean, it's like, Russell, how, how'd, you, how'd, you even, how'd you even get through a situation like some of you in the room tonight, I mean, you, you've, you've been through some stuff. You've lost a child or lost a loved one. You, you know what that's like. But I said, I, Russell, how, how did you do that? And he said something to me that, I, that just bore right into my heart. He said, he said, I discovered a grace I wish I didn't know existed. I thought that's just so beautifully typifies. None of us sign up for suffering. You don't have to like it. You don't have to love it. But in the midst of it, you can discover a grace that's so powerful in the midst of it. This is the grace of God. It's embracing the work of suffering, the work of the cross, being conformed into the image of Jesus' death. You're thinking, is this a message for revival? I thought this was the culture of revival. What are you talking about? No, I believe this is the key to the whole thing, right? The key to the whole thing is the, is the cross of Jesus. See, the work of being made weak affects how we communicate the message of the cross. If we are preaching from a place of arrogance and pride, it's not conveying adequately the message of the cross. Some of you have heard of uh, Watchman Nee, who was a Chinese preacher in the early 20th century. Amazing testimony credited for a lot of the churches that, that began in in um, China, wrote a lot of good books. If, if you don't know Watchman Nee, you ought to read some of this stuff. And in one of his books, he asked a question, a very interesting question. He said, why are there so many sermons on the cross on any given week that seem to yield so little fruit? That's his question. He said, why, why are there so many sermons on the, on the cross? Why do we tell some people about the cross and it just doesn't seem to be bearing much fruit? Of course, he's asking a rhetorical question. And then he comes right back up, and then he gives the answer. And I want to read these couple of quotes to you. He says, so often what we preach is indeed the cross, but our attitudes, our words, and our feelings do not seem to bear witness to what we preach. This is because much of the preaching of the cross is not done in the spirit of the cross. Only a crucified person preaches the message of the cross in the spirit of the cross. Listen to this, only a crucified person preaches the message of the cross in the spirit of the cross. How can we give to other people what we ourselves do not have? Unless the cross becomes our life, we cannot impart that life to others. The failure of our work is due to the fact that we are not eager to preach the cross without that cross being with us. Powerful. In essence, what he's saying, if, if we preach the message of the cross without first having been crucified by it ourselves, it oftentimes diminishes the very power of the cross. The power of the cross comes when the message is preached when Christ's death is active inside of us. Or we've embracing suffering. Now, this is not popular preaching in the, in the Western world, but this is essential preaching for most of the Christian world outside of this country. 
in Iran, in China, and in Africa. This is what's being preached. They're embracing right? The cross. They're embracing the death of the cross and the power of God is being manifested like crazy, you see. So how do we, how do we deal with that? You know, because suffering does visit all of us, so we have to practice it in the life that we now live. Sometimes things happen in our life that makes us feel like the jigsaw puzzle has been dumped out on the floor in front of us. And I just want you to know, personally, never buy me a jigsaw puzzle. I really think, I mean, if, if you were going to put me in a perfect hell, put me in a room with a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and say, put it. Some of you actually enjoy that. I'll pray for you. I don't know where the enjoyment comes, but, but can you imagine what I'm understanding, though, when you see a jigsaw puzzle all broken apart on the floor, what I had been taught and understand, before you start trying to figure out the little pieces, you got to find the corner pieces. You got to find the corner pieces. In other words, you, you got to find the four pieces that have a flat edge on two of the, of the four sides, and then you can begin to frame it in. See, what many of us don't have is a good theology of these things, a good understanding of God. So when something happens in our life and our puzzle pieces and our perfect life all gets broken down and on the, on the floor, we got to find the corner pieces. We got to find the revelation from the Lord about embracing these things so our life begins to make sense out of the mess and we begin to see what God is doing. I can tell you the most difficult moments of my life, the times when I wondered where God was and I didn't feel his presence, he was never more close. And those ended up being the hinges on which the largest doors of the kingdom of God were swinging. In the moments and times when I felt the farthest away and the most isolated from him, those were, the mo- those were the moments where God's grace was being manifested the most. And I've lived long enough where I'm starting to like, okay, God, that's one of the corner pieces to help me frame up what's happening when these things visit me, that the cross is having its work inside of us to promote true weakness. The first thing is weakness. God wants us. He doesn't want our strength He doesn't want you at your best. He wants you at your weakest. David said this way, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, he has yet to deny, right? It's from that place of brokenness and contrition that God will not deny and he visits us from that place of weakness. The second part of the recipe, we'll move quick here, is is fear. Weakness, fear, trembling. What's fear? Well, in my mind, fear is this, Proverbs 9, 10, that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So simply, what, is the, what does it mean to have the fear of God in your life? It means you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. That's really what it means. If the fear of God is active in our hearts, it doesn't mean we live in total terror that God's getting ready to beat us up. It just means that I'm going to love what he loves and I'm going to hate what he hates. We learn in Romans chapter 1, one of the things that was active in the person of Jesus was the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness begins to grip your heart and my heart. Many of us will tout and say, I want spirit power, but it's not about spirit power. What's his name? What's the adjective? Holy spirit power. You can't have power unless you're dealing with the spirit. You can't have the spirit unless you want his holiness. Those three things are interchanged. We can't run around wanting more power, more power, more power. We must have to face off with this beautiful person called the Holy Spirit. 
And he's not just a spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. And the, one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do is grip you with a spirit of holiness and begin to perfect in you your desires that you're going to hate what God hates and you're going to love what God loves. And you begin to build your life from that place. Or it can be said this way. There are two tables spread for us in this world. There's the worldly table and there's a table that God has spread for us in the presence of our enemies. And the one we choose to feed off the most will determine whether we thrive or whether we survive. It will determine that. In other words, if I, if I continually ingest things and do things that God hates, it, this isn't a salvific thing. This isn't your salvation. This will determine whether you and I are going to just survive or actually thrive. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get through this existence barely surviving. I see so many Christians, they're just, oh, I just got to get through one more day. I'm just barely surviving. That's not how we're called to live. That is not our portion. John 10, 10 acknowledges the fact that there's a thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Again, don't put a period where God puts a comma. But I have come. That you might not just have life, but what? Life to the fullest, life abundant. That's our portion. But you know how it's actuated in our life? Is when we have the fear of God gripping our heart and we begin to hate what he hates. And we're not going to eat what he wouldn't eat. We're going to eat what he gives us. And to taste and see that God is good. And then we begin to thrive in our relationship with him. It will be determined by your spiritual diet and by my spiritual diet. I like it just as much as you do. I love, man, when I have pizza, I don't want a slice of pizza. I don't want two slices of pizza. I want a pizza. You know? I mean, don't give me just one slice. Give me a pizza. Right? But it's probably not a good thing for me to get a pizza every other day. It's just not wise. Because you know how you feel when you eat a pizza. You're, not, you're, you're barely surviving when you eat a pizza. You crawl in the bed and say, dear God, what have I done to myself? Right? It's okay occasionally, but, but, you, but you can't eat like that every day and thrive. Yeah, you may survive barely, but you're not going to thrive. The Lord has put before us his table. And, and, and at his right hand, there are his pleasures forevermore. And we begin to enter into things that he loves. You begin to enjoy things that you never could imagine you would enjoy. You, you begin to find out that you not only have natural taste buds, you actually have spiritual taste buds. Sure. You actually can begin tasting of the glory of God, the presence of God, the peace of God, the love of God. And man, once you begin to taste that, you begin to realize, man, this other stuff doesn't have that. Lord, I want you above all else. Amen. That's what the fear of God is. Last one is this, quickly. <laughs> and the worship team can come on back up. The last one is, trembling trembling I was thinking about what it trembling you know I, I as I was praying what is it what does it mean trembling I think it's intimacy with sobriety it's intimacy with sobriety what's going to make me tremble is sobriety in, in the reality for all of us that are sons and daughters of the Most High God, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to happen to every single one of us. Many of us have disconnected what's coming in the future. We're all going to stand before him. And everything that we've ever done, check it out, 1 Corinthians 3, everything we've ever done is going to be tried by fire. It's, it's going to be tried. The wood, the hay, and the stubble. 
all the things that we invest our life in that has real no significant eternal ramifications to it. All the stuff, right? All the stuff that has nothing eternal about it will all be burned up, but the gold and the silver and the bronze, those things that we do in this life that have eternal significance that actually fills up our account in heaven where moth and rust and stuff can't get to, that's where we need to be. That's where we need to be storing treasures. You see? It's knowing that day is actually going to come And the Lord in his love and kindness here and now, he disciplines us. Read Hebrews 12. He disciplines us, doesn't he? Anybody ever had a spanking from God? Come on, anybody ever had, I mean, listen, he knows how to spank. He disciplines. He spanks us. Don't think, well, my God would never spank me. Well, then you don't know God. You don't know. If you don't think God's going to discipline you, he will discipline you. He will spank you. And it's not a fun thing to be spanked by God. It really isn't. But it's a testimony to what? It's a proof of his love. And you know this if you're a parent, don't you? You know one of the ways you love your children the most is you have to discipline them. And that's not easy. I remember one time my son Mark, and Mark was a, he was a booger, I'm telling you. Mark was a booger. And I, and I, and I, and I remember two different occasions that the Lord tested me in disciplining Mark. I remember having to spank him one time, and he was probably about six. And after I spanked him, Mark looked up to me and said, is that all you got? (laughs) I want you to know, DFAX was almost called that day. I said, oh, Jesus, what am I going to do now? Because Mark was a defiant. He was like, man, and I really believe I could have spanked him until his leg fell off. And, I mean, he still was that, all you got? I got another leg. Take it, too. I mean, he was just that... He was like that defiant. But I found out something about Mark. Because, you know, everybody's different, right? I found out, oh, the key to Mark is isolate him. Get him in the room all by himself. Oh, it, it, was, it was his own hell. I'll never forget that. But I remember one day he did something, and, and I sent him to his room. And that, as a dad, this will break your heart. If you've, if you've a parent, you may have gone through this. I remember he ran in the room screaming, I hate you, Daddy. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And he's laying in bed. And you're talking about something that will crush you? It's hearing your little boy say, I hate you, Daddy. I hate you, Daddy. I hate you. You think God likes to discipline you? Do you think he has some kind of a sadistic sort of pleasure in God? No. Man, the DNA of God is love, right? God is love. It's not something he does. It's something he is. So everything God does is motivated by love. Everything God does is always motivated by love because that's who he is. It's, it's way beyond an attribute. It's the very essence. If God had DNA, it would be love. So everything he does, everything he does is love. And the end result of the discipline of God on our life is to perpetuate a weakness, a holy fear of him, and a trembling of sobriety in a place of intimacy. So encounter, when it's all boiled down in my mind, that encounter produces a humble hunger in us, which constitutes a culture of revival. Say that again. What encounter does, what encounter, if we're going to have a culture of revival, it's going to be encounters with Jesus and his spirit that will produce a humble hunger inside of us that will make us a people 
that stare up at the sky. We can't make it rain, but we can expect it to rain because it's going to rain. It always rains. You can go to the deepest, darkest parts of the Sahara Desert and they still get a little rain. It doesn't matter where you stand. It doesn't matter your circumstance. You may find yourself in a rainforest and it rains all the time. You may find yourself in the Sahara Desert. Just look up. It's going to rain. It's always going to rain. It's always going to rain. And we have an expectancy of that rain. And then when it comes, we catch one drop of it and we savor it. Can I tell you, one drop of green food coloring will taint every molecule in a five-gallon bucket of water green. That's how powerful just one drop of a demonstration of the Spirit's power. We want a deluge. Yes, I want a deluge. But you know how powerful a drop is? Even a drop of His power will lay you out. He's that powerful and He's that strong. But the question is, do we have a humble hunger, right? Can I invite you to stand and